I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Um, Robert, uh, as I'm sure probably many of you know, is one of the more remarkable writers uh, this country has produced. He's had a very uh, a wide uh, uh, range of experiences and also um, an interesting career. Uh, I think I'd like to start by putting you in context, as it were, and going back to um, your early days when at university you decided that you wanted to become a Sufi. Yeah, I mean, the first sentence of my memoir is I decided I wanted to become a Muslim saint. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, I met uh, English converts to Sufism in Oxford and they, they talked about things. They talked about ecstasy, jinns, miracles, uh, extraordinary things. Um, I was reading medieval history, uh, well, mostly medieval history, and uh, they were describing stuff that I thought had stopped happening after the Middle Ages. It happened to St. Francis, it happened to maybe Teresa of Avila, but after that, you know, miracles stopped happening. I had to go, and I, I went there, and uh, when I arrived at this small town in western Algeria and walked through the door of the Zawiya, within two minutes, uh, I was um, in ecstasy, and the, the, the whole fabric of the world seemed a lot more flexible and liable to do things that didn't necessarily conform to the laws of nature. So it was all very exciting and strange. This was in the 60s, I take it. Yes. Uh, yes, however, you make the point in your memoirs, uh, the memoir, memoirs of, of a dervish, uh, but he is, um, is, is that you still absolutely have no idea what the 60s were about. Uh, Oh, I didn't think I made that point. I thought, I, thought, I, I have I know, a quote here, anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I felt on the fringes of it in the sense mm -hmm. that people like Germaine Greer and, and um, you know, various gallery owners and pop singers seemed to own the 60s. And I didn't mm. have that much about me at the time, so I felt on the fringes of it. But I was there on the fringes. Right. And b but before then, may I ask, um, you know, where, where did you come from to... Well, to experience, to, to, to plant the seed of this yearning? Um, it's hard to say. Part of it is that uh, my father was a psychiatrist, a consultant psychiatrist, and eventually superintendent of Holloway Sanatorium, 
which is one of the largest asylums in the country with its own tennis court, swimming pool, theater, art workshop, and so forth. And the annual ordeal for my brother and I was to go to the lunatic's Christmas party. Um, and, you know, I read my father's medical magazines and got really interested in strange mental states. And that's part of the background to arriving in Oxford, being determined not to get all that interested in Gladstone's educational bill or whatever. I was interested in other things altogether. Um, and there were, it seemed to me, and as I read in the memoir, that every, almost every school in England had got somebody who was interested in tarot cards, Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, and anarchism. And they'd all arrived in Oxford. You know, mm. Each school sent one of these people, and we all clubbed together. And that, so you, you, you finished your degree, though, did you? Yes, uh, slightly uh, to my surprise, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, but then you went off to Algeria. I kept going to Algeria yeah, while I was yeah, an undergraduate, yeah, oh. and then after it. Uh, and, but it got darker and darker. The the, the Sufis were under attack uh, in Algeria from the government and from fundamentalist Muslims who moved into Algeria from Saudi Arabia and members of the Muslim Brotherhood from Egypt, and they were literally under attack. There were sometimes violent confrontations in the street, and very soon after my last visit to the Zawiya, uh, the Sheikh and also my personal guru and another woman, were arrested and they were all taken away and tortured. Uh, the two French among them were eventually retrieved by French diplomacy, but the Sheikh was only released after his health was irretrievably destroyed by the torture, uh, which was masterminded by an, a gangster assassin who, uh, I've forgotten his name now, oh well, dear. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, was, uh, it, it became dangerous to go there uh, and the government seized half the property of the Zawiya and the whole place was effectively mm. run down and the, the heir to the sheikh uh, fled, to, managed to smuggle himself out to Morocco and eventually to Paris. And at some point you converted to Islam? Yes. That was a necessary precondition to becoming a Sufi. The idea that you can be a Sufi just by reading some mm. wacko West Coast books I mm. think is a mistake. Uh, Sufism is integrally central to Islam. Was it actually a conversion? We won't spend too much time on, on religion, but was it actually a conversion or, or, or was it, did it involve a change from pre-existing beliefs? Or It was a total conversion from atheism. All right. I, I know, my parents were atheists, I was an atheist, the school tried to have me confirmed, but I pointed out I hadn't yet been baptised, so that was not a runner, you know, so it was coming from there. So you're well up on the theology already. You know, you're able to have an, a, the, a good theological argument against the, the, the I, yeah, against I mean, confirmation. I, I didn't, you know, once I was there, I didn't feel that there was. This, this wasn't a matter of verbal debate. This was a matter of living experience. Mm -hmm. So I had to convert. Could you tell us a little bit about the experience of the, the, the monastery? Uh, yeah, but I think we should get to the book soon. Um, well, we will. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, well, it was just. Um, it was a medieval way of existence. There was no radio, there was no television. If there were newspapers, I didn't see them. Uh, you know, we sat on the floor to eat. Uh, toilets were difficult to manage for a Westerner. Um, and the miraculous happened every day. You know, um, that somebody would walk through a wall or uh, my guru used to read my mind and, and just, you know, I'd think something, then he'd reply without me having said a word. Um, that kind of thing happened every day. And I remember one 
morning, oh, what's happened to City? What's his name? Oh, yet too many figs. And then he had a vision. <laughs> then pass on. You know, it was just, it was the everydayness of the miraculous was strange. Well, no, ordinary. Um, um, you mentioned earlier in conversation that, uh, a story about a, a cat that was. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I was interviewed on radio after Memoirs of Dervish came out, and I said, well, I can't remember if I saw any gin or not. I think maybe I, I didn't. And then a friend of mine who had been at the Zawi with me happened to be listening to the programme, and he emailed me saying, you fool, don't you remember that cat? Oh, it, was... <laughs> it was a gin in the form of a cat, apparently. I don't remember the details of this, but, oh, was... you know, what has happened? Well, I suppose at this point we can begin. Well, we will get back to this your book. But then, anyway, you became an academic yes. at St Andrews, but you gave that up. Yes. Um, well, I, I I didn't feel as all that good as a, a teacher. I, I, Lecturer in le medieval history. Wasn't yes, it? Yeah. It, it actually was a medieval history department. I think it's the only one in the country that was just medieval history, and it's quite big. Um, and I just did European medieval history, Crusades and Byzantium and stuff. And it, it was a nice life in a way. It was a charming life, uh, and I, I miss St Andrews. But um, I I really I really thought. I, towards the end of my time in St Andrews, I suddenly got the sense I would be a better writer than I was a teacher. And mm -hmm. the, the opportunity for my wife and I to return to London came uh, because she could go, go back to work. And I would look after our daughter, who I think was one and a half years old at the time. And the minute we came back to London, our income doubled. And um, I found it hard work, of course, being kind of mum to a small child, but I used to push her around on Christian. If I kept pushing her, she'd fall asleep. Then I'd take my notebook out and start writing until she woke up again. And slowly life got easier and I wrote more and more. But the day I went to the professor and said, I'm going to resign and I'm leaving St Andrews. And he said, oh, all right. And he thought, he was obviously thinking quickly, oh, who can I get to replace him? Excellent. Uh, well, I, I went off to the library and I started writing. Cairo, said the guy, pointing ahead. And that was the first sentence of my first novel. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, did you? Uh, the, the subject matter of your your novels are full of well, they, they are either full of wonders or people who are engaging with them, uh, or and people um, such as you know, the, the, the story of the British surrealist. I think you're the first person to have written a novel called Exquisite Corpse. I think there are about mm. nine now, but yes, I wish I'd chosen a better title. Um, <laughs> but I, it was kind of I had a private sense that. The, there were a lot of people in that novel who were based on people I actually knew, but I'd taken somebody, somebody's mannerisms and another person's uh, uh, appearance and another person's job and I'd stuck them together, and that was the sense of the exquisite corpse. Right. Each portrait was a composite one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and these other novels all have sort of strange features like um, Limits to Vision, where the, the housewife gets herself through the very boring day by having William Blake, Charles Darwin, um, Taya de Chardin, uh, and various other people drop in, and not to help, but to at least to distract her while she's cleaning up the house. <laughs> is, that, is that a reflection of your own internal life? Or, well, or I thought, you know, I had to do, since my wife was at work, I had to do some of the housework. I didn't do enough. But I thought, you know, I must be able to get some money out of it. There must <laughs> yeah. be some traction in it. I, I, you know, I can turn this into a book if I think hard enough. Mm. Now, since then, you've become um, 
particularly known, I think, for your interest in, well, in, in the Eastern philosophy, the Middle East uh, philosophy of, the, of, of of Islam, and everything. You um, you wrote a rejoinder to Edward Said's book Orientalism. Yes, um, I thought, and I still think, and I think even more strongly now than I did when I wrote the book that, that his book was a disgrace. Uh, it, seriously maligned and libeled people, most of whom were dead and were in no position to reply, and presented fantasy pictures of these people. And by then, I knew quite a lot of people working in Middle Eastern studies, you know, translating Tabari or editing the Encyclopedia of the Ikhwana Safar or classifying Ghaznavid coins. And I knew these people weren't sort of slaves of imperialism or agents of colonialism. It was a, it was a fantasy picture of Orientalism dreamed up by somebody in an English lit department. Hmm. Would you care to expand on that a little bit? Because I, mean, because I imagine that the defenders of Saeed, of whom, when I was younger and greener, I might have counted myself because it was because it was meant to be a corrective. Mm. Uh, but I imagine you might have experienced a certain amount of hostility from people. Yes, a lot. Uh, <laughs> I was at a conference at York where there were about fifty people commemorating twenty-five years of Edward Said. I was the only person who was critical at all, but it didn't bother me. I mean, they they were just so vague about why Said was right, and I I, I knew for sure he was wrong. Um, <sighs> What can I say about side? No, I don't know. Oh, well, never mind. Well, we should get to that. Well, we'll now get to this most excellent book. Um, I've been held up by reading bits out to anyone who's around that I can, I, I, who will listen to me because it, I, cannot, I cannot stress how enjoyable, overstress how enjoyable it is. However, it does represent a certain kind of departure. Although you've written about various different subjects, you're now returning to the the uh, well, uh, the the world of the Wars of the Roses, with also roots um, in Arthurian legend, with it keeps coming the Grail legend as a recurring motif and a, you know a central motif of it. What made you go back to English mythology or history or both, um, as it were, after so much time in the East? Lots of things. Um, partly, it's the influence of a series of books. Uh, as a schoolboy, I read T.H. White's Once and Future King. Mm -hmm. um, and a year or two ago, The Independent asked me to choose the book of my lifetime. And I, I started my short article by saying it should have been Proust à la recherche de ton perdu. It nearly was. But actually, I prefer T.H. White's Once and Future King. It's, it's a beautiful book, uh, particularly mm. the first volume. It's quite I know, it's absolutely magical. I'm, I actually read it in a small biographical detail, sorry about it, but in a, in a tiny 16th century cottage, unmodernised in Wales. Yeah. When I was on holiday, it seemed exactly the right place to read it. It's a, it's a lyrical uh, evocation of what childhood might have been and how nice the Middle Ages might have been. Um, and I also read as a schoolboy Heisinger's Waning of the Middle Ages, which is a wonderful, mm. brilliantly coloured, jewel-like portrait of the late Middle Ages. Um, I really like the late Middle Ages. I, I don't like novels about King Arthur, which sit him as some kind of fifth century warlord fighting against barbarians in sort of dingy fog and mud. You know, mm. King Arthur is King Arthur. He has to be late medieval. He has to have Lancelot and Guinevere and Modred and all the rest of these people around him. There has to be heraldry. There has to be jousting. He shouldn't be this primitive bearded guy wielding a sort of stone axe or whatever. Um, and then thirdly, and it came to this very late when I was a university lecturer, there was um, Grant Uden's 
Dictionary of Chivalry, which is a book, I think, designed for children uh, and beautifully illustrated. And it's a dictionary of all the lovely bits of the Middle Ages. Forget the poverty, forget the plague, forget the torture. It's about heraldry, jousting, falconry, and so forth. And that, I sort of fall in love with that kind of version of the Middle Ages, and that's mm. what I wanted to summon up. I also wanted to uh, de-secularise uh, the way we write about the Middle Ages. I, it seems to me that most historical novels I read treat religion as if it's, uh, well, treat religion as if it's not there, you know. It, mm. It's like we're all living in Hampstead in the 20th <laughs> century. They all have yeah. modern values and religion doesn't really matter. Um, and the other thing is I wanted to look at the Wars of the Roses and not have either Richard of Gloucester or Elizabeth Woodville as the central characters, as they are in so many novels about the Wars of the Roses. Mm. What made you choose? Uh, um, oh, I also would like to bring up Mallory a little bit yeah. because he's um, he's a character here, and um, he I, well he's strongly informed. He was the inspiration for T. H. White, wasn't he? Mm. Um, well, when did you first read Mallory? Oh, quite late, I think. Um, ooh, actually, I don't know. Um, probably my thirties. It's, it's a terrible business. I mean, it's like my engagement with the Arabian Nights, it would be nice to say I'd read it as a child and I fell in love with it then. No, I didn't. I, I wrote a novel called The Arabian Nightmare uh, way in my 20s or 30s, 30s, I think, and, and then sold it to Penguin and then, or tried to sell it to Penguin, and then offered to Penguin to write a companion to The Arabian Nights, whereupon I belatedly read The Arabian Nights. Similarly, Mary, I read it pretty late, actually. But So that companion comes after The Arabian Nightmare? Uh, I think it's, I can't remember the chronology, I think it was published before they eventually agreed to publish The Arabian Nightmare. Mm. Yeah. Um, actually, come to think of it, I did read Roger Lancelin Green's very attractive child abridgment for children of King Arthur um, oh, when no. I was a child. Mm. Yeah. But you seem to have inherited from T.H. White and indeed from Mallory an ability to tell a story. Yeah, uh, well, now um, I've spent so many years now working on The Arabian Nights and then on um, Tales of the Marvellous and News of the Strange, and then on The 101 Nights, and then various other Arab story collections, that I've spent an awful lot of time thinking about not just how people compose stories, but how people respond to stories. And a lot of um, Wonders Will Never Cease is about how readers respond to the stories they're being told. For instance, I asked the question, what do villains think when they read a story about heroes? I, when somebody who, who's a bandit or a forger reads a story of King Arthur versus Mildred, is he going to support King Arthur and Lancelot and all the goodies, or will he be cheering for Mildred and Morgan Le Fay? Um, these sort of very naive questions, I thought, not usually tackled. Yeah, well, then again, naive questions of what stories are meant to answer, though, isn't it? Yeah. A, a particular kind of story. Do you, what the, the, do you see links between the stories of the Arabian Nights, I mean, which is also story is a story about telling stories, yes. uh, and and your own work? It is complicated. It's very complicated. The, the whole Arabian Nights business is uh, Sherazade telling a story to save her life. You know, as long as she can keep telling the story, she doesn't get killed. And within her, the story she tells is the story of the merchant who throws the date stone, which kills the djinn's child, and the djinn says, I'm going to kill you. But then three men 
intervene and say, hey, we can tell you a story, and if we tell you a story, you won't kill them. And so and you get all these people telling stories to save their lives. So they're delaying um, the, the, the death, which otherwise would come to the characters at various levels down within the story, within the story, within the story. But what I'm more concerned with in this particular novel is pretty much the opposite in a way. I'm writing about stories as, sadly, I mean, Arabian Nightmare was a young man's book. This is an old man's book. Stories as a preparation for death. And it mm. just strikes me that, for God's sake, Mallory's book about King Arthur is Mort D'Arthur. Yeah. And, you know, it's all geared towards taking Arthur towards death. The Chanson de Roland is about the death of Roland. The Nibelung lead is about the inevitable death of Hagen, or the second half mm. of it is, anyway. Um, there are so many medieval stories which are about preparing people for the inevitability of death. It's a glum, it's a very glum topic, but uh, don't be put off. There are some jokes in the book. There are an enormous number of jokes, and they're very good indeed. In fact, one of the, the, the interesting, uh, the, the overarching ones is the fact that your, your hero, Anthony Woodville, the scales, starts off as being really quite ferociously resistant to books and reading. Mm. And yet, he became the author of one of the first books to be published in this country. Mm. He, yes, I'm not made Woodville up. He does all the yeah. things I say he does, pretty much. Well, Apart from coming back from the dead. <laughs> no, no. Oh, no. oh, he did, did he? Yeah. Well, um, oh, right. No, I, this is where we start from. Um, the novel starts with the Battle of Towton, and it was reported immediately after the Battle of Towton that Anthony Woodville was dead. Um, and then somehow he turns up alive. So I've not. Entirely made that up. Oh, excellent. I make up very little. I, I work mm. within the facts. Um, so where I, were we on this? Um, so I was checking I was, um, the, yeah. the, the veracity of various events of the novel, and the, the, and the, the, it, things kept coming up as true. And yeah, they are. Um, anyway. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't make up the Joker Scoggin. I don't make up yeah. Ripley, the alchemist who acts as a, a, a sort of, what's the word, a political advisor and a spin doctor. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, well, Ripley is a marvellous character. He's a, a, an alchemist who's... Um, who's particularly interested in skull moss. I mean, which the, 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 the growth... Of, tell us a bit more about skull moss. I've I not made that up either. Uh -huh. um, if you look up on the internet the, uh -huh. under Hoplochrisma, um, you will find that um, this is a way, if you can get hold of skull moss um, and you're treating somebody who's been stabbed, as long as you get hold of the instrument that's done the stabbing or an instrument that's the same shape and you smear it with this skull moss, which is stuff that grows on skulls in certain circumstances, mm -hmm. uh, if they, you know, they're left on Tower Bridge on a spike or something, um, yet you will inevitably recover. Um, yeah, tradition sadly lost, but anyway. Yeah, and, and in fact, it doesn't work in the novel either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think at this point it might be worthwhile your reading something. Oh, yeah, God, I forgot about that. Um, well, um, Prelude, I've been working a lot on Ibn Khaldun recently, the philosopher historian of the 14th century, and he, he, what people haven't noticed about him before is how interested he is about foretelling the future. And since I've spent a lot of time thinking about medieval ways of telling the, foretelling the future, it sort of fed into this novel. And at some stage, Edward IV is worried about the number of conspiracies and uprisings and the threat from Clarence and Gloucester uh, and maybe France. And he needs to find out in advance. He needs good intelligence. And the alchemist said, well, you know, it's not magic, but I have heard of this thing where if you put a man of a certain kind in a barrel full of sesame oil and leave him there for 40 days, uh, this man, the head, 
which is practically all that will be left of him, apart from certain tendons and nerves that dangle below, will be able to tell you what happens. And in the novel, uh, the talking head has uh, very good knowledge of the future and no knowledge at all of the past. So the talking head doesn't know whose head he once was. Um, and um, he is interrogated by John Tiptoff, the Earl of Worcester, and Anthony Woodville. And they try him out on all sorts of questions, like Tiptoff wants to know how he will die. They want to know who will be heir to Edward IV. They want to know what the weather will be like tomorrow. And that's just to check on things. They want to know where he's getting his information from, which is apparently a secret library. Um, and Tiptoff is a bit of a character and somewhat eccentric. And he, and rather, rather strong-minded in a strange way, how will the world end, asked Tiptoff. This is how it will be, comes the reply. The darkness will grow apace. A cold wind will begin to blow in freshening gusts from the east, and the snow will now become heavy. The waves ripple and whisper. Beyond these lifeless sounds, the world is silent. It is hard to convey the stillness of it. All the sounds of man, the bleating of sheep, the cries of birds, the hum of insects, all that is over. As the darkness thickens, the flakes of snow fall more thickly, and the cold is greater. One by one, swiftly, one after another, the white peaks of distant hills vanish into the blackness, and now the sky is absolutely black. That is the end. Tiptoft is not pleased with this answer. Surely the talking head has been consulting with a lying demon. And now Tiptoft lectures the talking head on how the world will really end. First, the Jews will be converted to the true faith. Then Enoch and Elijah will once more be seen amongst the living. The Antichrist, who will be born in Damascus, will reign in Jerusalem until he will be slain by the last emperor. But who knows? Perhaps he's already been born there, a nasty little boy who now plays in the dust outside a Mohammedan temple, and the horn is yet to grow out of his forehead. After the last battle in which he's slain, the seas will rise and then sink, the fish will be stranded and groaning, trees and plants will be seen to bleed, and buildings will collapse and rocks explode, there will be earthquakes and the valleys and mountains shall be levelled, people will lose the power of speech, stars will fall to earth, the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride backwards and forwards across the face of the earth, and their leader is a pale rider on a pale horse, and his name is Death, and Death is followed by Hell. They are all in the service of a woman arrayed in purple and scarlet who holds a cup of abominations and filthiness of her fornications. On her forehead a name is written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And the bones of the dead are joined together once more, while those that are living die and the earth will burn. The last trump sounds to herald the second coming of Christ. Everybody should be raised up from the dust and tipped off to anticipate encountering Aristotle, Julius Caesar, Virgil, the Black Prince, and Judas Iscariot. But soon it will be time for judgment. God the Eternal Magistrate presides, robed in white and imperial purple and flanked by his angelic retinue. The angels have wings coloured like peacock tails. Some of the men and women who are naked will be led upwards by the angels who will garb them in light, while others who are also naked will tumble into the eternal fires and there should be no clothing for their sins. All this is known from our holy books. It is a great and glorious panoply in which the good are rewarded and the wicked punished. The end of the world, as envisaged by Tiptoft, is brightly coloured and peopled by crowds who shout and scream, and there are even those who are up to the last minute are yet lustful and eager to, forn to fornicate. So it's like a vast wild party that is out of control. <laughs> the talking head is not impressed. That's not what my book says. <laughs> um, I should add there, um, one or two of you may have spotted it, 
the talking head is, uh, is um, actually quoting from the, the, the end of H.G. Wells's The Time Machine. <laughs> uh, I can't make it explicit in the novel, uh, but it's clear that the secret, it's clear to me, the author at least, that the secret library uh, is in the 20th or 21st century. It's probably Dulwich Pic Public Library. <laughs> and the talking head, you know, gets the time machine off the shelf to find out what happens in the future. Mm. And it's a, it's a general theme of the novel. Uh, Ripley the Alchemist plagiarizes like mad from Dante. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. In from Mallory and Godness, what and mm. I plagiarized too from medieval sources and from modern sources. It's great fun. It's kind of like shoplifting without the danger of being arrested. Yeah, yeah. well, Ripley, by the way, he's a marvelous creation. Um, I particularly like what was the, a quote from memory, so I can't won't get it exactly. Talking about the things that bring you luck. So it's um, you know, seeing pictures of elephants, stroking a hunchback's hunch. Um, fornicating in church, there's a bit of a subplot about that uh, as well. And then he says, having sex in church, he says, not fornicating in church, having sex in church. And then he adds, of course, it could be said that having sex at any time is said it's bent to bring you luck. Yeah. It's full, uh, it does the TH right trick of, of while steeping you in uh, the Middle Ages or the late Middle Ages, uh, there is a great contemporary feel to it. Uh, you, you do not feel lost. It's the kind of book that I wish had been around when I was younger. It would have helped make sense of its history to me. It was Yeah, it's kind of game inserting contemporary references without making them overtly contemporary. Yeah. yeah. I mean, White probably might have done it. You, know, you, can't, you can't copy him. He did it extremely audaciously. T.H. Uh, White did. Mm. Uh, in his anachronisms. Mm. Yes, I don't do that. I mean, yes, because... Mm. I mean, when Merlin presents his um, credentials to Sir Ector at the beginning yeah. of, uh, of uh, what is it called, Once Future King, anyway. Um, yes, he has a sort of a recommendation from the headmaster of Baal, oh, no, the warden of Baal. Yes. Like yeah. Yeah. Yeah, stuff like that is great fun. I mean, mm. And he goes beagling and so on, yes. Mm. But, uh, no, I don't have that kind of anachronism. All my anachronisms mm. are veil, uh, veiled ones. Yeah. Well, that's... Um, what drew you back, though, to Arthurian legend? Um, well, as I say, I, I, I think... Well, the fact is that um, the Arthur we know is, is not some 
you know, fifth century, sixth century work. He is a creation of the late Middle Ages, of the 14th and 15th centuries. He is, to a large degree, the creation of Mallory, at least as far as English people are concerned. Mm. And that comes back to plagiarism, of course. Mallory's work is a massive work of plagiarism, deriving, mm. he's just ripped off a lot of French um, earlier mm. sources and improved on them. And it, it is the case that uh, Yorkist propagandists wanted to work with a revival of the Arthurian legend and to bring back an age of chivalry. Mm. But you bring out the politics of this remarkably well. It must have involved an enormous amount of research, though, to to be able to pass that on, you know, the various shifting allegiances. Yeah, it gets a bit tricky. I mean, it, I, in fact, I worry about the reader, you know, to, Who's this Clarence? Who's who's Hasting? You know, is Somerset on the Yorkist side or the Lancaster side? And at the time, they would be wondering that too, because Somerset crosses sides several times. It is a complicated story. Having said that, it's nothing like as complicated as the mm. history of 14th century North Africa, which is what I'm working on now right. <laughs> for uh, the book on Ibn Khaldun, where you know you've got four rival kingdoms. Um, yeah. It, that just popped into my head, Game of Thrones. Um, this n novel somewhat resembles it, but mm. when I saw the opening episodes of Game of Thrones, I was pretty bloody annoyed, actually, because uh, the villains in it, the House of Lannister, uh, are closely modelled on the Woodvilles, uh, yeah. Antony and, and Elizabeth oh. Woodville at the time of the Wars of Roses. George R. R. Martin has stolen them and, and made them into villains, whereas, well, I was going to say... Anthony Woodville is a hero, um, and so he's presented by his alchemist who spin doctors for him, mm. and so he's presented by the king who has him as the chief jouster, and he's widely, highly regarded, and uh, Caxton thinks he's marvellous, and so on. But it comes to Anthony, he's not an, ambi he's not an unambiguously mm. noble, gallant figure. No, and, and he doesn't think he is that much either, in a way, as well. Uh, men aren't like that. And on his way to Compostela, he encounters his double, the, the double who's been performing for him in the stories that Ripley makes up about it. This is Ripley's job. Ripley is to make Anthony Woodville really glamorous and exciting by inventing wonderful stories, the sort of stories that Mallory might have made up, but didn't. And, but this, Ripley's characters escape from the stories he's telling. And so on the way to Compostela, Anthony encounters his double, who points out all the evil things he's done. Uh, mm. And once you start totting him up, he, he's done <laughs> quite a lot of killing and stuff. He's, um, he's very much a man of his time. He has all the prejudices of his caste. He, he really is very contemptuous of the lower classes. He's a racist, um, and unthinkingly religious. He's, he has you know, many... He doesn't escape from his time mentally. Mm. Although Tipton, of course, is it Tipton? I think uh, who, who says that he, he he misses the smells of the Araby and the scents and the spices. Is that Tipton? I've, uh, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. no, 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 no. Oh, but, but anyway, but, the, 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 the contingency of, of, of history is, is another one of the themes. I love the idea that the the, the chronic the abbot who's been trying to work out the whole of world history uh, and they've come they've done their calculations they found that actually probably the years between 600 and 900 uh, didn't happen mm. and they were just they were 
And Charlemagne, he did too much. It must have been an, um, an invention in order to bulk out history. Yeah, yeah. The Abbot of Crowland, I think, would have been a keen reader of the Fortean Times <laughs> if only it had existed at the time. Um, and he, he does get this idea. Well, first he works on a chronology of the world uh, using all available sources, Christian and non-Christian, and comes up with this staggering conclusion that the world is 4,000 years old. You know, the mind grows dizzy at the length of time the world has existed, particularly before the abbot was born and even thought of. Um, and then, yes, he, his calculations don't work, so he decides that three centuries are, are off and have been invented by a chronicler working under one of the Ottonian emperors. And Anthony Woodville relays this to Tiptoft, who's in his own way as bonkers as the abbot of Crowland. <laughs> And tipped off, said, yeah, yeah, I, you know, nothing much happened there, except there's this Charlemagne guy, but I, I've always thought he was a bit of fake, because, <laughs> you know, he builds too much, he, he patronises too many manuscripts, he, 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 he conquers too many places, he has um, these paladins, Roland and Oliver, who do impossible things. Yeah, he's invented, like King Arthur. Like King Arthur, you know, Anthony's yeah. really shocked <laughs> yeah. the idea that, you know, Charlemagne, you can invite, invent, but, you know, Anthony's confident that the bodies of uh, Anthony, uh, Arthur and Guinevere have been discovered at um, mm. Glastonbury and the round tables to be seen at Winchester and so on. Mm. And he has this splendid rejoinder saying you know, the evidence that he didn't uh, did not exist is, is, is as mad yeah. as uh, the evidence you know, to, to say that there was evidence did not exist is a yeah. crazy thing. And it's a marvellous, you know, it's a nice logical argument in it as well. Yes, yeah, sort of. Uh, you, you have a world which is on the cusp of, of actual scientific thought. Yeah, yeah and later uh, Anthony encounters, oh, I've forgotten the man's name, but he, he's commander of the king's ships outside, out of Southampton fighting Warwick's fleet. And this, this man is full of the story of St. Brendan and the explore, exploration mm. of the Atlantic and the eventual discovery of paradise and the, or a glimpse of paradise on the other side of the Atlantic after visiting all sorts of miraculous islands, starting with the island of Sheep. And Anthony expresses doubts about St. Brendan. And, and then the, the man he's talking to like, but saints don't lie, you know. You, you've, got, you've got to believe in saints. So even if he'd been lying, the monks who went with him wouldn't have let him, let him go away, get away with it. And he's real, you can see his tomb. And, no, there's a sort of funny kind of logic operating. So Anthony has to withdraw that. Oh, yes, it must be true. Now we get back to your saying that you saw the miraculous every day mm. uh, uh, in this uh, monastery in, in Algeria. Yeah, um, it's not so much that. Um, you know, I, I try to keep serious religion out of all of my novels, even when it does look serious or it looks as though there's a bit of dervishery in it. It isn't. Um, it's that I've been working for so many years on uh, medieval Arab literature, and within medieval literature there is this genre of ajaib, wonder literature, and... Um, we don't really have it in Western literature in quite the same way, but within Islamic literature, ajab is uh, the marvels that they include sea monsters, they include strange plants, they include uh, killer robots that guard ancient tombs, all this kind of thing. Um, and it is a pious act to write about ajab or to read about ajab, to, to marvel at what God has created or allowed to happen. It is a pious act. Um, so mm. I've got very interested in the literature of Wanda in the Islamic context, the Arabic literature context, and I've transferred that interest to the medieval context. 
Yes, well, because they were Western context. Well, yes, I mean, they're coming back with tales from the Crusades about about the mystical lands, and and yeah, there's there's a running joke really about Anthony, who's sort of really bored with because nothing all that much happens in England, and everything's so old, old and boring, and he's always planning to go out to the east and and visit these mountains made of bricks and encounter wise sages wearing conical hats and see the vegetable lamb of Tartary. The vegetable lamb of Tartary, that was wonderful, yes. Explain the vegetable lamb of Tartary. It it shoots up and then it sort of munches all the uh, pasture around it and once it's exhausted all the pasture it dies. But But it's it's a great sort of... It dies though and so other vegetable lambs... uh, It's an expression of the, um, what's it called, the great chain of being. There isn't a hard and fast defining line between vegetable and animal in, in the Middle Ages. So mm-hmm. One thing glides into another. Uh, and you know, How much does this inform your own daily experience? <laughs> Just as a matter of curiosity. <laughs> I get up every morning. I had three miracles before breakfast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, no, but it is a strange business to spend you know, day after day, month after month, you know, reading about wonders and things. Mm. You know. Where did you get your? What are the best sources for this kind of? Well, Heisinger's not bad, and and um, and the Dictionary of Chivalry, um, and then well, let's think. Oh, there's well, there's so many books on Wars of Roses. There's no shortage, and some and John mm. Gillingham is good, um, and Paul Murray Kendall, who unfortunately is in possession of how nice Richard the Third was, and always <laughs> a kind, kind of crowned saint, but. His picture of social life in London is, is very good, and very he pre- presents a very attractive picture of bourgeois life in 15th century England, and it's very well researched. That's good. Um, this is good. Well, Mallory. Oh, well, yes, the very good biography of Mallory. Uh, quite a recent one, but I've forgotten the name of the woman who wrote it. Um, there is a well. There, uh, thank you very much. That's it. Thank you. Excellent book. Um, and it does inform my picture of Mallory, where he is, you know, like Ezra Pound or Céline, mm. a very good writer, but really rather a bad man. Mm. There's no getting around it. And it, it's, it's a curious feature that there's this very bad man who's writing about these noble paladins who've been vouchsafed at least a half vision of the grail. It, 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 it's, it's a curious paradox. Hmm. Um, I think we have time for... for Questions um, from the audience. Yeah. Um, You're a historian who's uh, written a historical novel, which in itself is quite unusual, I think. I've been trying to think of other historians who've written historical novels. Um, Because of the sort of status of the historical novel, which I I, I mean, I deplore, but I think it's now rising. What I was going to say was that Hilary Mantel uh, has recently made claims for these kind of um, historical uh, usefulness of of historical fiction, her her theory, as you probably know, is that is that the uh, historical novelist can take the sort of materials of a historian, but can then imaginatively fill in the gaps. So she makes, in effect, truth claims for um, her her fictionalised biography of Cromwell. And I'm just wondering where you stand on that. Would you make any sort of truth claims for your your fiction? I don't think I can reply directly to that exactly. I I have. Notice that some historians have used historical novels to fill the gaps in their knowledge. Uh, if I remember rightly, A.G. Taylor used to teach the Thirty Years' War on the basis of his readings of the relevant Henty novel, and I used to teach uh, the history 
of the Kingdom of Jerusalem on the basis of Ronald Welch's Night Crusader. It was a big help in giving the picture. Um, novels do, I think, sometimes, however tangentially, or do influence the way historians think about the subject they're studying. Um, yeah, it's very rare for, I think it is right, that very few professional historians have written historical novels. Um, this novel is um, Wonders Will Never Cease is neither foul nor fish. It is both a historical novel and a fantasy novel. As a historical novel, it, it's as much as anything a novel about the past, vision of the past. It's about the 15th century idea of what happened in the days of King Arthur and how they can be recreated and how we can avoid the mistakes that Arthur made, that kind of thing. Um, and, and Anthony is astonished when he goes, when his mother pushes him into a story from the Mabinogion and he, he confronts Bran and the early Irish uh, and how different their armour is and how different their ships are. He had no idea that the early Middle Ages was so very, or pre-Middle Ages, was so very different from his own time. Um, and as a fantasy novel, it is a novel about what is the nature of fantasy. Um, so, yeah. But there's also something primarily, yeah, storytelling is a big idea in the, yeah, there's another thread in, the, in, in this novel. It's... Yes, um, my most successful novel in terms of sales and foreign rights and all the rest of it was Arabian Nightmare, the first one I ever wrote. I had no intention of ever repeating that novel at all. Um, but having finished this one, I now see that without intending it, it is a kind of sequel to Arabian Nightmare. Mm -hmm. Um, it's done in a different dress and I've avoided doing the story within story within story within story trick but in other respects it, it's a continuation uh, but the difference is the Arabian Nightmare is a young man's book and this is an old man's book so hence the preoccupation with how people end up oh and that's another thing that, that's something that I got very interested in uh, one reads a novel like Day of the Jackal or Robert Harris's novel about Dreyfus, uh, can't remember the title of that one, and you know for sure how it's going to end. So where's the story? Why is one excited? Why, why would one read? And yet they are absolutely gripping. And I got curious with how is it that one can know the end of a story and that this does not diminish the tension, if anything, it increases the tension. There's a lovely line when the Sorry to, but but yes, but when I'm talking about Anthony's own backstory and talking about you know when there was the curse, you must not look through the keyhole. Yeah, he's talking about the, the, this ancestor of his who turns out to be a dragon. Yeah. Um, or yeah, there's a tension in. Do not story. look through the keyhole, and yeah. if it doesn't, you don't want him to look through the keyhole because then something bad will happen. But you also want him to look through the keyhole because otherwise there'll be no story. Yeah, so. The story has to happen, so Guy de Lusignan looks through the keyhole and finds out that his wife is half a dragon. Yeah. Mm. Thank God for that, so the story continues. But you're sort of unhappy because something bad has happened in the story. This is always the way with novels. You, you, don't, you, you can see that the heroine is going to crash the car because she's drunk and so on. You don't want that to happen, but you know, it's, it could be no good if she just gets out at the nearest Tesco and, sort of, you know, and calms down and sobers up and mm. sails up. You know. mm. Nasty. Mm. As anyone who writes novels knows, nasty things have to happen for the story to work. Yeah. You've spent, obviously, a lot of your life looking at 
um, Eastern mysticism, Arabic mm. mysticism. And here in this book, you're talking about English mysticism or Anglo-French mysticism. And mysticism is quite a deep, um, you know, seam running through English culture, I think. And I'm wondering if you have any reflections on the kind of differences or similarities structurally between the kind of mystical strain in Englishness and the mystical strain in Arabic culture. Uh, very little connection, I think. Um, if the closest things I've spotted to uh, Islamic mysticism, Sufism, has been Russian Orthodox mysticism, as portrayed in uh, Way of a Pilgrim, uh, which is, I think, a 19th century text, or the teachings of Archbishop Bloom, who died, I don't know, a few decades ago. Very powerful stuff and very similar to Sufi stuff. In the novel, I'm not really d dealing much with mysticism. Uh, the main th mysticism mainly features as um, Ripley plagiarizing from people like Julian <clears throat> Norwich uh, and borrowing that. T.S. Eliot said, um, let me think, bad poets imitate, good poets steal. Ripley aims to be a good fantasist, so he steals from people ruthlessly and he steals from English mystics to give his. Uh, his outpourings a kind of pious gloss. And I gather you've borrowed the character of your dentist for Ripley as well. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, my, my, my dentist was always sort of presenting me as somebody rather marvellous. Oh, well done, well done. You know? <laughs> and that's what Ripley does to Anthony. It wears Anthony down. And Ripley's determined, well, creates this fantasy of Anthony as sort of never having sex. And when he goes to bed with his wife, he puts a sword between her and him, and wearing a hair shirt and it's covered with lice, and he scourges himself once a day. And you know, after a while, people sort of draw away from him at parties because <laughs> they think he's going to smell. How do you off. sleep in a hair shirt? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. But he's like a Merlin, you know, a, a sort of slight unmagical Merlin in a way. Yeah. I, he, 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 he's, he's, he, as he says, I. You know, I, d I don't turn lead into gold. Who needs that? We've got plenty of gold in the kingdom. You know, I do more complicated, more intellectual things. Um, and he, he, as I say, he does the spin doctoring. He's good on gunpowder, and therefore the Earl of Warwick values him. For, and he, he, he does fireworks. Um, so there's a bit of Gandalf in him as well. And um, he's... Oh, and this gets me to something. Um, and then he's given the, the mission of, you know, we've got to know the future. At which point... He, he draws on a medieval Arabic text, Picatrix, to get the man in a barrel full of sesame oil to do the prophecies. Um, so that's stolen from um, this medieval Arabic text, the Re'el uh, Hakim, and it's reproduced also in Ibn Khaldun's book on the philosophy of history. And throughout the novel, there's all this stealing from the Arabian Nights, particularly in the penultimate chapter, where there, there is this beautiful courtyard in London which... Anthony has been looking for for a long time, having ridden past it too hastily several times in years past. And he comes, at last he and King Edward and Lord Hastings, all in disguise, find it again and they enter it. And there are three ladies there who insist that stories must be told. And after the stories are told, and they're strange stories, uh, there is the whipping of a dog and the woman who whip, whips him weeps. And all that is a kind of ghostly reenactment of the story of the three ladies and the porter of Baghdad in the Arabian Nights. 
it's all got a different significance. The ladies are after different things. The whipping of the dog is for different reasons. It's not Haruna Rashid, it's Edward IV. But it's, it's a kind of ghostly resurrection of the story. So there's all this sort of borrowing and stealing from Arabian sources running through the text, which won't necessarily be obvious to many readers. For me, one of the very interesting minor characters are the criminal family, the Cottles, mm -hmm. which, when I first read the book, I assumed were made up. Then I later found out that they weren't made up. Um, are there many sources for this interesting criminal 15th century family? Not many, but there are some. I, you know, I, I can't give you any off the top of my head, but yeah, they're there. Uh, but there again, um, yeah, the Cottles I did not make up. They, they were a very well-established mafioso gang, uh, more prominent in the 14th than the 15th century. Um, but there again, I, I give this account of how the Cottrells, when they want to burgle a house, will slip a tortoise through the window, uh, and the tortoise has a candle on its back, which is lit, <laughs> and they wait and see what happens. If the householder appears and says, my God, there's a tortoise with a candle on its back, they think, no, we won't burgle that house. <laughs> but if nothing happens, then they go in, and the tortoise on the candle on its back help illuminates the room they're about to rob. That, that <laughs> is stolen from Edmund Bosworth's excellent book on the medieval Islamic underworld. <laughs> it's an Arab trick, not an English one. So again, there's this stealing. I, I don't make the cockerels up. They, they had their hands in all sorts of things. And Scoggin, the, the jester, one who has terrible jokes. They, they oh, are God. genuine medieval yeah, jokes. Yeah, They're yeah. awful. Yeah. Again, I didn't make him up. He's real. He was the fourth jester. Um, yeah. Well, he did a good one about you know which way the rivers run you know, from a battle. You know they always from a battle. Yeah, you know, the rivers but, being Anthony Woodville's uh, peerage title. You know. Yeah, Scoggin is good at insulting puns. Yes, and 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 I actually have done a tiny bit of research on this. So the Lord of Misrule, and um, that that's all that's true as well. And when he makes a speech. No, 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 it isn't. I mean, yes, there is a lot of misrule. But the whole idea that there's this ceremonial investiture of the King of Fools on the eve of the actual royal coronation is, I had to say, to other people ask me, an invented tradition. I, I and again, um, I, I worked part-time at the Times Literary Supplement and had to go out to Wapping every few weeks. It's a ghastly journey from Tar Hill, walking the gritty road, heavy lorries, dirty, boring. I hated it. And so when I got to write this novel, I took revenge on Wapping and described it as a medieval industrial suburb full of stinks and you know, use of excrement for tanning and sort of sea, smell of sea coal and turned it into a nightmare place. It's one of the joys of novel writing, taking revenge on that. <laughs> uh, given your wide reading and engagement with Eastern literature, could you offer some comments on Jalaladin Rumi? Because he's a mystic, he's a poet, he's entertaining, and he has a wide following in the East and in the West. And I wonder, is that following, does it match up, or are we misunderstanding him in East and West? Um, well, some people certainly misunderstand But no, he, he's a great man. Um, um, a very prolific poet and storyteller. I think there's a lot of work to be done on, I'm meant to do it myself one of these days, I probably never will, on the historical information you get from his life and the, his encounters with various Turkish and Mongol officials and so forth. There's a, there's a huge amount there. Um, and it's not him, but 
it's during the, the succession of his son, if I remember rightly, that the Mevlevi dervishes, the whirling dervishes are created. They are part of his legacy to the world. It's a huge literary legacy. And when I last looked, uh, Jalaluddin Rumi was the United States best-selling poet. Absolutely mm -hmm. full stop. Um, but he is, when he's read in the United States and in England, to some extent filtered by a sort of uh, new age or new agey type poets, some of whom don't know Persian at all and who are relying on a literal Persian translation, which they are then sort of reworking. It, it, it's a kind of... Uh, so you're not necessarily always directly engaging with Rumi. Um, he's very prolific and... My God, it's, it's, it's a mine of stories. It, it, you know, it, the stories are shorter and less complex in the Arabian Nights, but there are an awful lot of them. And he was very uh, hugely erudite. Thank you very much, Lord. So, um, again, I just you know, bore you again by saying just how wonderful this book is, and you must get it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can unlock the entire LRB archive for free for 24 hours by visiting lrb.co.uk forward slash open. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.